Well, hey, good morning and welcome to Crossbridge, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jordan. I am our online pastor and one of our teaching pastors here at C3. If this is your first time visiting, I would love to connect with you after service in the lobby. Uh, and if you are watching with us online, comment down below. I would love to connect with you after the service because we are in our Easter series right now, preparing our hearts for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the resurrection of Jesus has already happened in history, but as Christ followers, it's so important for us to get to a posture and a place of humility regularly, not just one day a year as we celebrate Easter and the resurrection, but Paul actually words it this way, that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, nothing we do even matters. As he's penning his letters to the churches, he, he comes to this central idea. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, nothing we do the other 51 weeks matters. And so it isn't just an Easter Day celebration. It's the church's battle cry. The resurrection of Jesus. And as Brad mentioned last week, as he kicked off this series, a lot of times as Christ followers, we want to get to the celebration without fully understanding the depth and the brutality and the sacrifice that Jesus endured prior to Easter Sunday. So that's what this series is all about. Famous last words where we're taking a close look at some of Christ's final words on the cross. But before we get to what we're discussing today, one of Jesus' most famous sayings, I want to prepare our hearts by uh, encouraging us to get to that posture of humility. And to do that today, I'm going to walk us through very quickly just what Christ had experienced from a pain level up until he was then brutalized on the cross. You see, Jesus experienced so many different forms of abuse. Emotional, mental, from his friends, from his followers, from his people, from his religion. And then physical abuse as well. And so in the last 24 hours, it's actually a series we did either last year or the year before. We did a two-week series called The Last 24, where we broke up into two weeks the final 24 hours of Jesus' life prior to the crucifixion and just walked through so that we could prepare our hearts for the death of Jesus, what Christ endured prior to the cross. You see, he wasn't just betrayed, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, wasn't just betrayed by one of his closest followers, Judas, who Judas then handed him over to be arrested. He wasn't just betrayed by one of his followers, he was betrayed by probably his closest friend, Peter, as well. As after he gets arrested, he's now in the temple courts. And here's what's so scandalous about this whole situation, okay? In, in the middle of the night was when all of this went down. And the Jewish culture and the Jewish custom was that if you were going to make an arrest and then hold a trial, it needed to be during the daytime for various reasons. One, so that everyone could show up and be present, okay? Two, it kind of eliminated the scandal of just trying to uh, uh, arrest someone and, and have your way and, and without a quick due process, without a quick trial, uh, to kind of just eliminate that from being the case. And so Jesus, arrested in the middle of the night, betrayed by one of his best friends, Judas, to 
the guards and the religious elite is now in the temple courts in the middle of the night being mocked, spit at, beaten, abused, and he's just taking it. And as he looks to his near vicinity, Peter is warming himself up at the fire, denying knowing him multiple times. And the Gospels say that after the third time, Jesus and Peter make eye contact. As Jesus is there and one of his best friends, probably his best friend, probably the oldest disciple, the one who he says, on this rock, on you, Peter, I will build my church. And he looks and Peter has just denied even knowing him. And just a couple of chapters prior to this, Peter had said, no, nah, I'll go down with you, Jesus. And it didn't happen. So Jesus is then somewhat condemned, at least from the religious leaders. They call him a blasphemer, which means he's claiming to be God, but isn't really God, is what they were arguing. And so they throw him into prison in the middle of the night. He then stays there. And then early in the morning, they take him to the, uh, to the different um, governing officials. Because you see, what was so, hypo- uh, so hypocritical of, of the Jews is that they would often, or they would try to condemn people to death, but then because of their laws, they couldn't actually carry out the, the, the killing. So they had to have other people do the dirty work for them. And so they took them to different um, governing officials to be able to, uh, you know, condemn Jesus to death. And so they take him, and he stands before Pilate, and Pilate wants nothing to do with this guy. There's not enough evidence. In fact, there's no evidence that what they're claiming about him actually happened. So he just wants to kind of pass him off um, to other people. And then he's like, okay, what if I just slightly punish him? And this was the slight punishment for their culture. You'll just be stripped down naked with your hands shackled to a pillar and just take a brutal beating known as the scourging. And the scourging was kind of just this whip rope with leather pieces, and then it would be attached with shards of glass and metal and bones. And guards standing on both sides of Jesus would then stick the whip into the back, rip as hard as they could to try to rip off as much flesh as possible, just brutalizing the back. That was the lesser punishment. Depending on the crime, you would have 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, and so on, lashes. And Jesus took the brunt of it all. Afterwards, they get him to stand. They take him back out. He's standing before the crowd. His body literally shredded. And the crowd recognizes that once a year, they are allowed a prisoner to be released. And so, once again, Pilate, trying to calm the crowd, is saying, do you want Jesus or do you want this Barabbas? And Jesus, standing there in front of who used to be his followers, amongst a lot of religious elite, hears them chanting, we want Barabbas, we want Barabbas. Why is this fascinating? Because Barabbas, a murderer, led an insurrection. And Jesus, this perfect fully human, fully God, seeing those whom he had just performed so many miracles for call on his death. 
So they trade places. Barabbas is treated like this hero. Jesus, a criminal. They hammer down the crown of thorns. He's fully stripped down. You see, we have these images of the crucifixion. And it doesn't do it justice in our culture. We can't fully grasp and understand the brutality of this murder, of this killing. You see, the Romans didn't invent the crucifixion, but in a sense, they perfected the crucifixion. Their goal was to humiliate and kill. They wanted to persuade people from either launching an insurrection or rebellious act against the government, or they were punishing people, more times than not slaves, for trying to escape their masters. And so they would strip them down. They were trying to humiliate them, be fully naked, body completely brutalized as they then carried their cross to the skull. And we have this beautiful picture of the people who afterwards go and get Jesus' body to bury him. But that was a very rare occurrence. Most of these people being killed didn't have family and friends who wanted to care for their body afterwards. And so more times than not, the bodies would be left to be fed on by animals and just rot on the cross for days and days and days. It was brutal. It was disturbing. And that's the death that Jesus was going to endure. So with all of that in mind, Jesus is then nailed to the cross as he has to breathe, scraping his bludgeoned back on the wood. He utters these famous last words. Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. You see, a lot of times the Roman officials and the guards would just sit underneath the cross waiting for the person screaming above them to die. And to pass the time, they would gamble for their possessions that were left. Their clothes, materials. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Today, we're going to be talking about those famous last words. We're going to be talking about the weight and the power and the enormity of forgiveness in 25 minutes. <laughs> Honestly, this could be a 52-week series. The topic of forgiveness is so heavy, so gigantic, that I'm not going to be able to do it justice today. And recognizing Jesus' words on the cross and the humility it took for Jesus to even get to that position is something, unless we were there on the cross with him, and had experienced what Jesus had experienced, we still don't understand the power behind these three words. Father, forgive them. But I want us to do our best to get to that posture of humility 
And so here's what we're going to do. I want to I spend some time in prayer, opening up our hearts for this message. We're going to then walk through a passage in Matthew 6, then a passage in Matthew 18, and then for the final 10 minutes, navigate through two ideas on forgiveness. And then we're going to pray. That's kind of the roadmap for today. Will you just bow your heads with me? And if you feel comfortable, open up your palms to the sky and just say, you know, just Holy Spirit, come. Fill this place. Open our arms. Open our eyes. Open our minds to just be able to receive your words. There's nothing I can say today, God, that will even come close to what Christ said on the cross. But my hope is that this message today would provide some healing and some hope for those who are hurting or some conviction for those who need to seek forgiveness from others. In your name I pray. Amen. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What a powerful just, you know, it's, it's actually one of the first things that Jesus utters on the cross. As Jesus is proclaiming to the crowd, who's out there mocking him, who's out there, uh, the same people who had literally just beaten him and left. The, you know, the religious elite, the Pharisees wanted to be there to see it happen. To see their Jesus uh, guy who was causing all of this ruckus, make sure that he was going to die so that they could continue to neglect others the way that they had been and so jesus on the cross he does this powerful thing father forgive them and here's what makes this so powerful you see in the beginning of matthew matthew chapter 6 jesus in this experience in this moment on the cross right now is actually putting into practice what he had encouraged what he had encouraged his disciples to do a couple of years before at the very beginning of his ministry, when the disciples ask him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. It's actually the only time in all of the Gospels that the disciples ask Jesus to teach them something. Jesus, teach us how to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, and then here in Luke 23, Jesus actually puts into practice how he taught them how to pray. Here's what Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, walking through what's commonly known as the Lord's prayer. This is what Jesus says. This then is how you should pray. Verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and then verse 12, and forgive us our debts. Why? As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You see, Jesus is putting into practice what he has encouraged his disciples to do all along. And here's what's so fascinating. This was a very common teaching for Jesus throughout his entire public ministry. This word forgive is the Greek word aphiomi. And what's so fascinating about this word is it doesn't just mean in our sense of what we see in, in this context, okay? In fact, there's like 12, 13, 14 different ways that this word in Greek is used. 
one of the contexts used about 47 times in the New Testament is to release someone of their debts, which is the context of this passage. A fiamie, to release someone of their debts. It was used in legal rulings. It was used in divorces. It was used if someone owed you financial burdens, you would a fiamie, you would forgive, you would release that person of their debts. Their debts would be no more. You wouldn't set up a payment plan. It was to release someone, to, um, to forgive somebody, to uh, just completely wipe out and eliminate that which was holding them back. And so Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples how to pray, he's saying, in Christ, we are called to release our debtors from their sin against us. Now, this is completely scandalous, an anti-world, completely scandalous and anti-world, because they hurt you. They cut you deeply, and they should pay. There should be justice. There should be punishment. They should pay for what they did. And Jesus, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. I release them. Here's the thought that I was wrestling with all week. Perhaps Jesus knew that the fullness and the works of the cross couldn't have been completed unless he had chosen that posture of humility to forgive those who had hurt him. Jesus needed to choose that posture in order for the sacrifice to be complete. Because unforgiveness is poisonous. It's destructive. And it's painful. Now, I am not a master forgiver. People have hurt me that I struggle to forgive. I have hurt people who I struggle to recognize what I did was wrong. I recognize even with the topic of this enormity that there are so many things you could say, but what about this? But what about that? But what about the abuse and the pain and the, the struggle and the hurt? Yes, yes, yes. And we're going to talk about what that process looks like and what forgiveness means and what forgiveness doesn't mean. We'll talk about that. But here's what I want you to know as somebody who has been hurt. Unforgiveness harms you much more than it harms anybody else. And the healing, and this is why, because the healing can't start until you have released that person of their debt onto you. We're going to talk about what that doesn't mean toward the end. But I just want you to hear that right now. That you cannot begin healing from whatever pain you're experiencing and the flip is also true. Seeking forgiveness for things you have done or forgiving yourself, perhaps Jesus recognized that. And that's why on the cross, one of the first things he chooses as a posture is, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. This was a very common teaching. Atheomy, release them of their debts. 
Jesus was putting into practice this famous parable from Matthew chapter 18. If you'll turn with me there, this is Jesus talking with his disciples. Verses 21 through 35, it's known as the parable of the unmerciful servant. You see, Peter, verse 21, comes to Jesus and he asks him this, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Here's what's so fascinating about that statement. We're going to go on here in a sec. Here's what's so fascinating. Up to seven times, you see, Peter actually thinks he's already accounting for Jesus, telling him to go above and beyond. And I don't just mean like in our culture. In Israelite culture, it was very common for them to put into practice forgiving someone up to three times. That was what was practiced. Some scholars say that it was three times a day, and that was the maximum, like they put a maximum on it. Sometimes say three times only. Either way, the number three was very common of of releasing someone of their debts. The, The standard was three times. And so Peter, knowing how Jesus, when Jesus says, you have heard it said that, Um, to not commit adultery. I say, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. Jesus was just scandalous for taking what was and saying, my standard's even higher. And so what Peter's probably doing is he's like, ooh, do I forgive them up to seven times? I'm already doubling and adding one to the number, and here's what Jesus says. So much more fascinating. In the very next verse, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or some translations say seven times 70. Verse 23, here's the parable or the story, the imagery that Jesus tries to share. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with the servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, and that word gold in the original text is talents, one talent was equal to 20 years of service. And so someone owed this person 10,000 bags of talents, or sorry, 10,000 talents, which was 200,000 years of service. Jesus is just showing that it's, it's this allegory. It's this, it's, he's trying to exaggerate the, the instance. That there's no way this person could actually pay back what he owed. Verse 25. says he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the very servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, forgave the debt, a me, released the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. The original text says denarii. One denarii was equal to one day's wages. And so this person owed him a hundred days work of service. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled, I forgave, I affirmed all that debt of yours because you begged me to. 
shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then verse 35, probably one of the most powerful passages in this whole story. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And here's kind of the moral of this story. God's forgiveness shows no limits. We see that Jesus is showing us God's ability to forgive by creating this exaggerated situation. 200,000 years of service. God's forgiveness knows no limits. There's nothing you could do that can't be forgiven from. But unforgiveness, and here's the moral of the story, but unforgiveness will shackle us to prison for life. That's what Jesus is saying here. And it's messy. Messy, messy process. But so important for us to get right. So here's kind of how we're going to wrap up just the last 10 minutes. Our two areas of focus for today. Because I asked Facebook, my friends, you know, what, what are some questions, thoughts you have on this topic? Because like I said, we can read scripture, we can understand the concept of forgiveness, and it's still hard. Somebody hurts you. And I want you to know I see you in that hurt. You're not alone. But unforgiveness is one of the loneliest things you can do and be a part of. And so I couldn't walk through all of the questions and the thoughts. There are so many good ones. But here's the two areas we're going to walk through just for the last couple of minutes, give you some thoughts to think about. Number one, forgiveness is often a journey. And number two, forgiveness does not dismiss accountability. Okay? Forgiveness is often a journey, and forgiveness does not dismiss accountability. Okay? First one, forgiveness is often a journey. You might be asking the question, why am I still hurting after trying to, a me, release this person my debts? I was asked, what kind of emotions post-forgiveness are okay? What an honest question. Because that person hurts you, and that's what you have to recognize is you were cut deeply. There's scars on your spiritual heart and in your soul, and sometimes physically that you have. And we're human. And so, friends, here's the first thing I want to encourage you with. Because forgiveness is often a journey, give yourself grace. Sometimes time is healing. Sometimes your brain literally physically needs to heal from some of the traumas you've experienced. I'm not standing up here today to say that every single one of you needs to just go home and forgive right away. No, that would be, that would be so wrong. What I'm encouraging you to do is to begin the process because this is a journey. And depending on the weight of your hurt, it could take the rest of your life. We see Jesus on the cross getting to such a place of humility, and that's what we strive for. That's what we want. But some of you experienced some painful things this week. 
And it's going to take some time. Don't hold yourself to that high of a standard because if the forgiveness is not genuine, you're just lying to yourself and prolonging the healing process. Give yourself grace in the journey and be okay with having off days. Be okay with being in pain and having scars that you have to work through and heal from. But if you're not honest with where you are in the journey, then you're not going to be able to begin healing from it. Second point at that very end. Forgiveness does not dismiss accountability. You may have heard it said, forgive and forget. That's not scriptural. There is one verse in the prophet Isaiah that says, God, as there's forgiveness that takes place, God wipes that from his memory, your sin, and he will remember it no more. And we misquote and misrepresent that text so much, and we have turned it into this, these songs and these sayings, forgive and forget. I'll let the abuser continue to abuse. I'll let the person taking advantage of you and manipulate you continue to do that. And we wouldn't actually agree to that philosophy, but that's what we're saying when we say forgive and forget. No, what that passage in Isaiah is saying is that when God is looking at you, he sees his son Jesus. He doesn't see the wrongs that you've done. That's what forgiveness does. But if we believe that God is omniscient and omnipresent, which means he is all-knowing and he is always present, then God knows everything you've ever done with or without forgiveness. And yet he still sees Jesus when he sees you. Okay, just to put the story kind of into our context, when Jesus is at the woman at the well, okay, John chapter 4, and he called what, what appears to be him calling out the woman, you've had five husbands, and the man you are sleeping with now isn't your husband. He's not holding that against her. He's saying, you have done these things, and guess what? And I still love you, and I still see you, and I still want you to heal from this, and then go and sin no more. That's what the passage in Isaiah is saying. Forgiveness does not dismiss accountability. If I need to give you permission to set up boundaries for people who have hurt you or to cut toxic people from your life, I give you permission. Sometimes you just need to be told it's okay to set up those boundaries and to step away. You can still heal and forgive without maintaining a relationship with that who has hurt you. And that's okay. Because here's what happens if you don't. Not just continual offenses and abuse and pain, but it prolongs the inevitable. And here's what the inevitable is. Mark, let's put this last quote up here. This is how I want to end today, okay? This is a quote from one of my favorite authors and pastors, Rich Velotis, his newest book, Good and Beautiful and Kind. Here's this quote. He has a whole chapter on forgiveness. Unforgiveness doesn't merely inform the way we relate to the person responsible for the offense. Here's what unforgiveness does. It metastasizes to the point where other relationships are filtered through previous experiences. This is why so many people who have been Abused physically, sexually, mentally, spiritually, have trust issues and boundaries, and it makes sense. 
because our guards go up. This is why some people don't want to return to a church. We're seeing denominations fall right now because of sexual and physical abuses from spiritual leaders. And unforgiveness has this effect on our bodies. I I read, Brad sent me an article this week on the neuroscience behind unforgiveness. And it literally rewires and impacts and affects your brain negatively and damages your brain. I love it when neuroscience catches up with what Scripture has been telling us all along. And it will impact your other relationships that you never meant to hurt. So friends, here I, here's how I want to close today. I'm going to close this in prayer, but I just want you to give, per, I want to give you permission to navigate and slowly begin this process. Like I said, this could be an entire series. I probably didn't answer any of your questions. My goal today was to give you permission to begin healing and let you know that you're not alone. But as a Christ follower, and I would argue as a human, we must work toward forgiving that which has hurt us. Because we will be the ones who are hurt if we don't. Father, forgive them. Will you pray with me? Holy God, Heavenly God, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these words, for this space, for these people. God, I know there's so many people here hurting who have been hurt by others, whose spouses have neglected them, whose relationships have abused them, whose coworkers have hurt them. This week, there's been some painful experiences. And so, God, just meet us here. Meet us in this moment and help us begin to start that healing process of forgiveness. In your name I pray.